Well, good morning. It is uh, it's great to see you all this morning. We're going to be in uh, Matthew 16. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there, if you've got a phone or tablet, you know, go ahead and find that uh, spot. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. Those are there for you, so feel free to grab one. Uh, we're going to be in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in your New Testament in chapter 16 in just a minute. So first off, if you're a visitor here with us today, let me invite you into the conversation. We um, started this year working through a sermon series entitled Unity of Faith. And so we're planning on spending the first uh, 13 weeks of 2015 walking through the foundational truths of the Christian faith and what defines us as a church. And so um, we're about halfway through. We're today going to be talking about the church and what on a foundational level the church is and what our role is in the world. And uh, so that's where we're headed today. Um, I want to uh, just to start by He's given us some, uh, some general understanding of what we mean when we say church. Um, if you look at the Old Testament, the people of God are most often uh, referred to or described, uh, metaphorically speaking, as, as a wife or a bride. And so we get this idea that the church is not a temple or a building or a necessarily a geographic location. Even though Jerusalem was the center of worship, Jerusalem itself is oftentimes referred to as, as, a, as a wife. And so we understand that first and foremost, the people of God are the church, not the building, uh, not the geographic location. Even in the New Testament, Paul will refer to the church most often as a body, using the word soma, the Greek word that literally means human body. And so that's the way that the word of God describes us as the people of God, to understand that the church is a people, not a building. And so first and foremost, I'd say to you, if you're visiting with us today, and maybe this is your first time in our building, um, I hope that you have come in contact with our people, because that's who the church is. I hope that somebody has shook your hand or given you a hug or extended a greeting, uh, because that's where you will come in contact with the true church. And now we're going to look at Matthew 16, this beautiful conversation that began between Jesus and his 12 disciples. It culminates in a specific conversation between Jesus and Peter, where Jesus lays out in just a few short phrases, beautiful description of who the church is and what our role is in the world as the church. And so we're going to pick the conversation up in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Jesus draws his, his disciples aside and says this, now... When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's asking them, What are people saying about me? And so the disciples respond with some different answers. Verse 14, And they said, Some say John the Baptist. At this point, if you don't know, John the Baptist has been beheaded and, and killed. And so some people have, have heard of John the Baptist but never seen him. And they see Jesus and they're drawing an assumption. Maybe that's who, maybe that's who he is. He's John the Baptist. And and so some are saying that. Others uh, are saying Elijah or Jeremiah. Those are prophets from the Old Testament. And uh, some, so some are saying uh, Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So others are saying there's just something profound about this guy. We're not sure who he is. He's got to be one of those prophets that we've read about from the Old Testament. And so then Jesus turns to them in verse 15 and says very specifically, but who do you say that I am? And then in verse 16, Simon Peter speaks up, and he replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus responds to him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's his formal name. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This beautiful statement you just made didn't come from you. He goes on to say, but my Father who is in heaven, that's who it came from. As he continues, verse 18, he says, and I tell you, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, to fully understand uh, the, the verse that begins with, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church. We need to take a step back for a minute 
and take the whole conversation into context. So what has happened so far is Jesus has asked his disciples a profound question. First of all, asking, what are the people saying about me? And then they give some responses, and then he just looks them all in the eye and draws them in close and says, yes, but who do you say that I am? Peter steps up with this beautiful answer, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Jesus' response to Peter is this, you didn't come up with that on your own, Peter, but my Father in heaven has revealed that to you. Now that's important to understand because what Peter says, or what Jesus says right after that to Peter, you are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. There's kind of a play on words in the original language. Uh, the word for Peter and the word for rock is, is almost exactly the same word. So it's almost as Jesus says, you are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And if you're not careful, Peter automatically becomes the rock. And we don't realize that there's a really important subtle word there, the word this. What did Jesus say? My flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And so as Jesus responds to Peter, he's not saying, I'm going to build my church on you. He's saying, I'm going to build my church on what you just proclaimed. But flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Upon this, I will build my church. Now, this isn't the first place that, that Jesus has taught publicly or, uh, or spoken on building life on, to, on top of a foundation of a rock. Matter of fact, in Matthew 7, earlier on in his ministry, uh, Jesus is talking about the way we spend our lives and the things that we build our lives upon. And Jesus says this in Matthew 7, starting in 24. He says, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So in the same way or a similar way that Jesus is talking about building his church upon a rock, he talks about our own lives this way, that when we hear the words of Jesus and we believe them in a way that we put them into action, it's like a wise man who builds his house on solid rock. Now look at what he says after that. Verse 25, inevitably, storms are going to come across. Storms are going to uh, come against our house, against the things that we stand for, against the things that we believe. Verse 25, he says, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. What was the rock? The things that Jesus spoke, right? Those who believe his words, hear them, believe them, put them into action. He's like a wise man who builds his life, not just his religious life, not just his Sunday morning activities, but his whole life, right, on solid rock. And then in contrast, Jesus says, but here's the flip side, verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. This is the man who leans on his own understanding, the man who builds his house on what makes sense to him or his own ambitions, his own goals, his own priorities. It's like shifting sand. And the man who does that will be a foolish man. Verse 27, again, the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So this idea that each of us as individuals, depending on where we build our life, right, determines the outcome of how we weather storms, storms in the form of hardship, storms in, in the form of suffering, Storms in the, in the form of frustrating circumstances, disappointments, being let down, letting other people down. Those storms are coming against your house, against your identity, against the, the people in your life. And so Jesus says, the difference will be the truth that you stand on, right? This foundation you set by what you stand on. So now Jesus is using a similar illustration to talk about his own church, that his church will be established upon this Statement of faith from Peter. What was the statement? That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The church will be built upon what is true. If you're taking notes with us today, the church is, it's not just people, but it's a, a gathering of people who believe and trust in Jesus as the foundation for life. Like I said, not just the foundation for your Sunday mornings, right? Not just the foundation of your religious life or the songs that we sing, but every corner of your life. That's who the church will be. 
those who have truly trusted in faith in Jesus. Now, there's a significant difference, and we need to make a distinction here, between Jesus being the foundation for your life and Jesus being your good luck charm. And unfortunately, in the culture we live in, it's hard to distinguish between the two sometimes, right? And so what Jesus is talking about here, weathering the storm, he's talking about a foundational belief, not just something I hang on my mirror or a necklace I put around my neck or a verse I put on a coffee mug or a T-shirt just in case I need it. See, I think we experience a lot of that in the culture we live in. More of a good luck version of faith rather than a foundational truth that we stand on, that guides every realm of our lives. A foundational truth that doesn't not only guides what I sing on Sunday, but it guides the way I lead my wife on Monday, the way I lead my children, the way I interact with my friends. Every area and arena of my life guided by this singular truth that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So when he instructs me as a husband, I listen. When he instructs me as a father, I, I want to hear those words and I want to follow his instructions. When he instructs me as your friend, I want to hear his words of wisdom and submit and follow, governing every realm of my life. When I show up at work, right, this foundational truth that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, resounds within me. And even my work ethic displays that I believe that's true. The church is the gathering of people who believe and trust in Jesus as the foundation of life. And so when Jesus says, on this rock, that's the rock he's talking about. Well, the next thing that he says is this, I will build. Okay? And so from the inception of the church, the church has been a project under construction, a building project, if you will. And so we're going to look in just a minute at Acts 2 where the church launches in a very dramatic and amazing way. And you're going to see the church under construction. But what we need to understand that to still to this day, the church is under construction. So like if you've been around here for the last six months or a year, you've seen a lot of growth take place in our church. Because the church is still under construction. Jesus as the master builder is still building his church. It's why we were on mission. That's why we reach out to our neighbors. That's why we are on mission to the ends of the earth because Jesus is still building what he's calling his church. He says, I will build my church. Let's, under, let's think about this from two angles. First of all, let's think about what this means individually for each one of us because Jesus is building in me something. He's working on me. Okay, and then we're going to talk about what it means collectively or corporately as a community that Jesus is building. And then we're going to look to how those two things actually interact with one another and work towards one another. So individually, first and foremost, if I've come into the place in my life where I, like Peter, have said, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I've trusted in that, and I've built my life upon that foundation, then Ephesians 2, Paul's going to explain to me something that's taking place inside of me. Starting in verse 8 of Ephesians 2. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And so he's going to begin by explaining how this building project is first and foremost individually. Verse 8, Paul writes these words. This is chapter 2 of Ephesians. He says, For by grace you have been saved. Whose grace? Jesus' grace, right? We build our lives upon that truth. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's not your own work. It is the gift of God, verse 9, not a result of works so that nobody gets to boast. So your spiritual growth isn't something you get to brag about, right? So we don't come into the church and, 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 and lay out our, our, our weekly spiritual growth as a, as a point of bragging. Look what I did this week. I mean, I had a quiet time every day. I memorized 30 verses of scripture like, like I almost didn't sin at all this week, right? See, that's what it looks like to boast in your own works. That's not at all what's happening here. Paul says, if that's you, your life isn't built on solid rock. You're still built on, sh on shifting sand. Come back next week and let's hear the report, right? So we first and foremost understand that it's the work God is doing in us. It's a gift through faith. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then verse 10 just paints a beautiful picture for me. For we are his worksmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. The imagery I get is, is of a blacksmith and an anvil. And there's a hot fire. There's a bucket of cool water. There's a, there's a, a master craftsman with a hammer in his hand, a pair of, of tongs. And then there's a piece of steel laying on the anvil, and that's me. 
And at times in my life, things are heating up. I'm under stress. I'm going through a really rough time. The storms are pressing in against my life, and things are heating up. I'm getting soft in areas. Other areas are burning away, and the master craftsman lays me on the anvil and begins to slowly and gently hammer and shape me into who I am to be. We're his worksmanship. And then at other times, he dips me in the coolness of water, and I rest. And I'm calm, and I'm at peace, and things are well. And then I go through another season of difficulty, and I'm back in the fire being heated up, only for, to do what? To get back on the anvil, to be shaped more into his image for his glory, to be cooled off again. And there's this process that's called sanctification. It's the process of Jesus shaping you into who you already are. If you are a Christian, you are his worksmanship. He's working on you. But not only is he working on you, he's working through you, right? Because he's preparing good works in advance that you would walk into them, right? And so him working on me is an act of faith, but him working through me is an act of faith. Some of you have, have specific things this next week. He's prepared in advance that you would walk into them. Some on the onset won't look like fun at all. They'll look more like the fire, but in faith, we walk into those situations trusting, right? My, my, my life is built on the foundation that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and he has prepared good things for me that I'll walk into them. And on the onset, some of them look difficult, like kicking and screaming. Yet, in faith, I know what? He's going to turn this around for my good and his glory. He's going to use this to transform who I am more into the image of Jesus. And so by faith, I walk forward. But I also know this, that he's called me into good works to be on mission. Jeff was up here talking about some of those examples. Some of you are um, already signed up and slated to go to the Philippines. There's an example of a good works that's prepared in advance that you would walk into that. And for the love of God and the sake of his glory, do not go on your own strength. Let that be a walk of faith. Trusting that he's prepared that in advance that you would just show up and walk. And that's what he's doing individually in our lives. But if you keep reading Ephesians 2, he quickly shifts to what he's doing collectively and corporately in the community of each of these individual people. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says this. So let me just give some background. Some of you grew up in church, and you may not fully be able to wrap your mind around what he's saying. I came into church as a, as a teenager, and so there, it was a little weird at first. If we can just be honest, church folk can be weird. So you come in, and like everybody's dressed the same, and they're singing the same songs. They're standing up at the same time. They're sitting down at the same time. And it was just a little wacky for me, right? And I, was, I felt like a fish out of water or like a stranger. Well, what Paul's going to say is he, he's going to first start by, you remember when it felt that way? And this is where he starts in verse 19. So, so here's the thing. That's not who you are anymore. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We read that and we think, okay, so I've been invited to the household of God, household of God. There's a special table for the saints. I just get to kind of chill here in the background and kind of watch what they do. No, this word saint actually applies to every person here who's in Christ. You've either been redeemed or not redeemed. That's, that's it. It's, it's all or nothing. He doesn't just partially redeem invite people into the cheap seats of, of the kingdom of heaven. It's all or nothing with him. The redeeming work that Jesus did on the cross is all or nothing. And once we believe it in faith, this redeeming work takes off in our lives, and you're now a saint, from sinner to saint. There isn't a person in this room who has a past that is so dark that God can't redeem it, or a history of events that God is so embarrassed by that he just wants to shove you into the background and make sure that nobody notices you. It's, it's an all-or-nothing redeeming work that God is doing. If you are in Christ, if your life is built on the foundation of Christ, you're a saint, and you're a member of the household of God, period. No stepchildren, right? All or nothing. So look at what he says. Verse 20, talking about us being built now. We're all members of this God's household. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So just in short, getting to the truth of Scripture, these men, as we talked about a few weeks ago, carried by God to, to write out the Word of God and what we have in the Bible. So we've, we're, we're standing on that truth. We're built on that foundation, verse 21, in whom the whole structure, talking about the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is beautiful imagery. Uh, It makes me think of a stone wall like one of these samples here on the side here. Where stones, I don't know if you are familiar with the, the construction process, but they don't start off looking like this. Matter of fact, a dump truck shows up to the job site and dumps out just a big pile and mess of rocks. And it's the mason's job to sort through those stones, pick out the good ones that can be used, and discard the ones that can't be. What we need to understand is that Jesus, as the master mason, has actually gone to the pile of of useless discarded rocks to build his church. Okay, let's just keep that in mind. That's, That's me. That's you. To those who have been rejected, to those who otherwise society has said you're pretty useless, God has said, "Mm, not whenever you're in my hands, not when I'm the mason. And just like each stone in these pieces of wall here, Jesus has picked each one of us up from the rubble and begun to shape, begun to chip away, and has placed us uniquely into a specific place within his church. He's not talking about architectural structure here. He's talking about a people built together, one solid structure. Now, I love what he says next. Built on the foundation of the prophets, Jesus himself being our cornerstone. Let's think about that. What is the cornerstone? The cornerstone is the central stone to which everything else leans. Okay, so we're not just a group of people who get together and sing kumbaya or Lean on me when you're not strong. What happens and what what imagery we're getting here is this idea that Jesus is the one we're leaning on. And the more I lean into him and you lean into him, the more we're leaning in towards one another. But he's the central stone that we're leaning against, the one holding us all together. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together. And so not only is there an individual work God is doing, building in me, shaping me, refining me, but there's a collective work called the community. He's pulling us together. As I lean on Jesus and you lean on Jesus and he shapes me and and he shapes you, we look up and all of a sudden we fit together in stability and structure built on the same foundation. And so there's a corporate work happening in the church. Um, Ephesians 4, just a few verses from Ephesians 4, describing who we are then as one structure. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 4, says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's only building one kingdom. He's only building one church. Now, I know when we step back and we look at the the current church Forefront, it gets a little confusing, doesn't it? Different denominations, different styles. Some make a big deal about Jesus, some maybe don't. And, and it's hard to get your bearings on who the true church is, right? And so here's what we're, we're seeing together foundationally, that the church is built upon the rock of those who believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Style of worship has no bearing on who the identity of the church is. Whether or not we're, we're blowing it up with drums and the full band, or it's just a simple week with a, a dude and his guitar, or maybe a cappella, right? The worship is founded in this truth that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whether we dress formally or informally has no bearing on the identity of those who are actually in Christ. You see how shallow we oftentimes make the church, Right? We get excited about the church that worships the way we want to worship or that dresses the way we want to dress or talks the way we want to talk. And and we begin to find our identity in shallow things. And Jesus is pointing us to the deep things of God as the true foundation of our unity. I love how Paul lays this out in 1 Corinthians 12. Just a few verses. The whole chapter is is fantastic. I encourage you to read it this week. In in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing, describing how the church works together like a human body. And he just gets specific and talks about how the eyes aren't the ears and the ears aren't the eyes, but they need each other in the same way we need each other. So as God shapes us into the different pieces of the church, we're we're working and and you need my strengths, I need your strengths. Look at what he says, though, starting in the second part of verse 24. He says, but God has so composed built together, constructed the body. He so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. So you picture that, that stone wall. What happens when, 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 when division sets in, a crack, 
The fracture line sets in. The whole wall now becomes weak and vulnerable. He's saying that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. So when you go through something hard and you're suffering, I'm supposed to feel it. When I go through something hard, a form of suffering, you're supposed to feel it. We can't, we can't if we're not leaning in, walking in true fellowship with one another. If I'm just showing up on Sunday, right, and going through the motions, doing my preaching gig, walking off the stage, grabbing my stuff and going home and I don't see you again until next Sunday, this can't take place. Because when I suffer, nobody's there to feel it. Look at what he says also. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. How can I rejoice with you unless I know you and I know what's going on with you? You see how there's this beautiful intimacy within the body of Christ as we are shaped and brought together by the master builder. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, Ephesians 4, um, if you want to turn there with me, you can. We'll have these up on the screen. talks about how the two come together in, in a beautiful sense of synergy as the Holy Spirit of God works on us individually, works on us collectively, and how the two rely on one another. So in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, the first thing Paul does is let me explain something to you about church leadership. Here's why God has placed church leaders within the church, because I think there's some misunderstanding. When I was young and, and young, new to church, I saw the church leaders, and I thought, man, those are the superstars in the kingdom. I'm just here to cheer them on, and they get to do the real work. But as I began to grow in my knowledge and understanding of who God was shaping me to be, I realized, oh, wait, you're asking me to, to be on the team? I feel so inadequate for that. And God says, I know. I, I prepare the good works in advance. You walk and come with me. And, and I began to get involved in the, in the, in the game, if you will. But my, my, my first perception was a little misguided. I saw these rock star Christians, right? The pastors, the missionaries, these great leaders. And I thought, man, those, those are the guys who do the work for God. The rest of us, just cheerleaders, right? Water boys, right? I'll carry this stuff over and you do the work. But look at what he says in Ephesians 4. Starting in verse 11, Paul is talking about Jesus. And he says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. These are the church leaders. Here's why he gave them to the church. Verse 12, to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Every person who's been redeemed by Christ. So the role of the church leader is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the role of church leaders. As we lead and we guide and we, we humble ourselves before God, our primary role is to, is to prepare you as the saints to do the ministry. You're the rock stars. You're the missionaries. You're the, the ones on the front line doing the work in your own homes, in your own life, in your own neighborhoods. We're here to prepare you for that work. Look at what he says, for building up the body of Christ. When we do our job well and we prepare you well for the work of ministry God's called you to, something happens to our body. It's built up. Let's talk for just a second about numbers. Um, because on one hand, we say it's not about the numbers. What we mean by that is we have no desire to simply put out seats and fill them with warm bodies. We have no desire. We're glad you're here, but that's not our desire. However, on the other hand, we're going to see that this, this growth, this building of the church is about numbers, right? Because our job is to take light and hope into a world of darkness that more people might come to this realization that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and build their lives upon it. So on the other hand, it is about numbers, Right? It's about this compassion and mercy welling up within us that we want to, we want to see captives set free. Already this morning, I've had the opportunity to, to hear from different people and to pray with different people who are being set free from the most entangled addictions that you can imagine. One by one being set free by the love of Christ. And so our desire is to be built foundationally, spiritually, numerically, as more, and pe more people come into this hope. But look at what he says. So being built up for the building up of the body of Christ, 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith. So the name of this series we're on. What is the unity of our faith? What did Peter say to Jesus? You're the Christ, the Son, of the living God. Look at what Paul says here. The unity of our faith and the knowledge of who? The Son of God. So it comes up again. 
It's not just our starting point. It's our sustaining fuel as we grow in Christ. We're all growing up into a deeper knowledge that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. Does that sound familiar? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7. We build our lives so when the waves come, the storms come, we're sustained. So we may no longer be tossed about and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love. By the way, this is your role. Every person in this room who has been redeemed by the love of Christ, verse 15 is talking about you. Rather, speaking the truth of lo- in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This church won't grow unless we grow. This church won't grow unless each one of us, as a stone in the wall, does our part. 1 Corinthians 12 lays it out for us. There are, some, there are some, uh, some roles that are up front where everybody gets recognition. Guys like myself, like Jeff Sanders, who was up here, we're, on the, we're out here in the front, and we get a lot of recognition. You have no idea how many volunteers are serving behind the scenes. I mean, we have folks who come up here Monday through Friday doing all kinds of work that you have no idea about. But see, the point is we're each one doing our role, right, doing our work, and here's what happens. The church grows up into the image of Christ. And we begin to look more and more like him every day when each, part's, each person is doing their part. It's a corporate collective work. So we are, going back to 1 Corinthians 12, we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And the body grows up, builds itself up in love. If you're taking notes, the church is a unified body that grows together as a community into the image of Christ. I am a lousy Lone Ranger Christian. Trust me. Ask the people that know me best. You want to see my life get derailed in a hurry? Let me walk by myself for a while. I need you. I need your presence. I need your encouragement. I need your fellowship. I need your correction and accountability at times. I need you, and strangely enough, you need me. We're to be a community growing together into the image of Christ. Now, the next thing that he says is this, upon this rock, I will build my church. So we know that. We've already talked about how the, the pinnacle of our unity is Jesus himself, right? He's making this proclamation, proclamation, mine, my church, a church that is identified primarily by me as the cornerstone. Now, the word church here, actually, this is the first time that Jesus is recorded using that word. And it actually is, he borrows it from the secular society he lived in. It was actually more of a formal um, political term um, that was used in the Greek language in this point in time to describe a group of people who were all citizens of the same uh, community or nationality who have left their homes, come out of their homes, and joined together in a public assembly. That was what a church was. So like a public um, gathering, a, a, a public um, meeting, if you will, of citizens. If you're a member of this community, we need to call you out of our homes into a gathered together corporate public setting. So Jesus says, that's a way I want to describe my people. People who are called out of their homes, right? Together, together in unity in a public setting as citizens of the same kingdom. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. Right? We, we've, we've, we've been drawn out of our Work life, our home lives, our individual lives to collect here together, to gather together, right, in a public assembly to say, we're actually all citizens of the same kingdom. I belong to you, you belong to me, we belong to Christ. So that's the word church means here. Um, In Acts 2, let me just give you some background. So in Acts 1, um, this is where Jeff was referring to earlier, where Jesus said, go to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So what happens in Acts 2, the next chapter in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls and like wrecks shop. Like it's, the disciples themselves were caught off guard by the movement of the Spirit in such a profound way that these miraculous things were happening. And people began to gather around where the, where the apostles were and just in intrigue and curiosity. What's going on here? What's all this noise we hear? So Peter, 
Uh, the same guy here, he steps up to the mic, if you will. No microphones, but he steps up to the platform and says, all right, guys, let me, tell you, let me tell you what's going on. And he just starts telling them about Jesus, that Jesus ultimately is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, at the end of his sermon, his first recorded sermon in the church, that people respond, we're cut to the core. What do we do? He said, well, I remember Jesus said, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So repent and be baptized. And so the people repented, came to faith in Jesus. They, they, they made this declaration, we're going to build our lives upon Jesus, and we want to be baptized. So Acts 2.41, we'll pick up the story. Records this. So those who received his word, remember, the wise man is the one who hears the word of Jesus and builds his life upon that word. So now here we have Peter proclaiming Jesus, and it says, everybody who was there who heard his word, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a big Sunday. From like 120 believers to 3,000, like that. And then we get a description of what they do after this. Verse 42, they, being these new Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, which is communion and prayer. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Hear that description? Those who used to be separated and have nothing in common now are being brought together and shaped together into this beautiful mosaic masterpiece that is the church. This imagery in my mind I get is of a stained glass window. And if you look at a stained glass window long enough, you're going to recognize there's not a, a, sh- a piece of that glass that's the same as any other piece. Some are similar colors, some are similar sizes, but they're all different shapes. And, 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 and cast into a pile, it's going to look like junk, discarded, broken glass. But what happens? The artist comes in and, and begins to weld these things together into a beautiful mosaic masterpiece that paints one picture. This is the imagery I'm getting of the church. Each one of us is a broken shard of glass coming together. And here it says, they believed And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together. Why? Because they're the church. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, the church just launched Thousands. You get to Acts 4, thousands more coming into this fellowship called the church. Um, Matthew uh, 18, in a different context, Jesus, I think, says something really profound when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He's a very simple way of saying, what is the church? It's any place where two or three people gather in his name, gather in the truth of the identity that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. When we gather, if it's here in this building or at your house um, or in the parking lot of a restaurant, I had the opportunity to pray with a gentleman uh, a couple weeks ago who said, I'm ready to become a Christian. What questions do you have? I just need to know what I need to do. This is it. Believe. We can do it here. We can do it wherever. So in the parking lot of Rodeo Goat, grown man, right, says, I'm ready. Let's do it. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to be saved. We took our hats off and we prayed together right there. And he became a citizen of God's kingdom. The church exists where two or three gather in his name. Got to have more than one, though, right? To be a body, to be a collection, to be a community. I want to look just briefly at Revelation 5 with you. Um, I love the songs that you and I will sing in eternity. I don't know why, just something about imagining you and I no longer singing here, limited by this room and this stage and this sound system, when you and I at the top of our lungs, right, made into the full image of Christ, transformed, sin is completely behind us, death is gone, no more darkness, at the top of our lungs, just singing together. I love what we're going to be singing. And so in, in, in Revelation 4, this, this throne room scene is painted. There are angelic beings, there are elders there who are bowing down in just humility, laying their crowns down. And then there's a scroll present, and no one is found to be worthy to open the scroll. And John, one of the disciples, he's the one writing Revelation. It it began to churn inside him. He was broken. 
They begin to cry out. Is there not anybody here worthy? And at this point, at this point in Revelation, the lamb who was slain makes himself known. And all of a sudden, the crying ceases. And Jesus, the lamb who was slain, goes over and unlocks the scroll. And on the, on the scroll are the lists of all the names of those who have been redeemed. Jesus is the only one in heaven who's worthy enough to unlock that. Not John, not the angels, Jesus himself. And listen to the song that we'll sing in Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Revelation 5, starting verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. They're singing to Jesus. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You, the church, completed your mission. You did that. And because you went forth and took the gospel to every nation, God has ransomed people from every tribe and language and tongue. Is this not, I mean, are you excited? This is awesome. Verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Our worship in heaven will be rooted in our faith in Jesus. Nobody gets to heaven through the blood of the cross and then dismisses it and starts singing a different song, right? The song of the redeemed is still our song because we get there and we realize I was in the pile of rubbish. And I think we'll see even more clearly at that point how just unworthy we are. And that'll be our song. I've got no other boast. He, he died on the cross. It was his blood. That's what ransomed me. That's what allows me, from God's perspective, to be called a saint, a priest, and a holy nation. Uh, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2. Just You don't have to turn there. We'll throw this up on the screen. Peter reminds the people of God, the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people. You were a bunch of people, but you weren't a people. You hear the difference? Right? A collected, unified people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And because you've received mercy, you're no longer a sinner. You're now a saint. If you're taking notes with us, the church exists wherever, wherever redeemed sinners gather together in unity as the saints of God to exalt the name of Jesus in worship. Or we gather together in his name. You could be on Sunday morning at Solid Rock. You could be in a remote tribe of the Philippines with no tr church structure at all. The church exists wherever, wherever redeemed sinners gather together in unity as the saints of God to exalt the name of Jesus in worship. That's, that's who the church is. And then this last statement that Jesus makes, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. From the onset, Jesus wants us to understand that the church will be on a mission and in a very real battle here on earth. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but we're in the offensive position here. Gates are a defensive position. And as the church advances forward into the darkness, bringing light into the darkness, what Jesus is saying, you rest assured the gates of hell will not stop the church as it moves forward. We're definitely on and clearly on an offensive mission. Now the question is, what is it supposed to look like, right? We all need to go home and get our swords out and sight in our rifles and be ready to go like, to battle. Ephesians 6 is a beautiful explanation of the spiritual battle we're in. This is the end of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's, that's hard to understand sometimes because it looks a lot like we're wrestling against flesh and blood, doesn't it? But God speaks through Paul and says, I want to remind you something. There's a spiritual battle waging in the background that you can't see. And it manifests itself in a way that it looks like flesh against flesh. But he said, you need to understand, there's a spiritual battle taking place. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's the church. We're wrestling against that. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, stand, having done all to stand firm. 
I want you to think about our spiritual battle on, in two different ways, okay? One, I want you to think about the church being the place of safe harbor, okay? There's a, um, if you study medieval history and, and the way castles were built, uh, you look at, especially in Europe, there's a, there's, a, there's a special place within the fortress called the keep. And this is the place of last defense for the kingdom. So if enemies come against the king and the kingdom and they breach the walls and they breach the fortress and the infantry and all the, all the safeguards, the last place that the king is to run is into the keep and it's the last place of safety. Okay? So in, in a lot of ways in the spiritual battle that we face, the church is to be the keep, a place of safety and rest. So as you're out there living in the world and, and, and walking through the storms and walking through the darkness and in and, and, and ways where the enemy is coming against you and your family tempting you, lying to you, trying to fill your mind with, with, with shame and, and things that aren't of God, when you walk through these doors, this is to be a keep for you, a place of safe harbor and rest, a place where when you come in broken and battered from the war and you walk through those doors, there's a brother or sister in Christ ready to slam the door shut and hold out the lies, the things that aren't true to remind you that you haven't built your life upon those things that are not true. To remind you of who you are in Christ. And this is to be a place of safety, a place of transparency and humility. Like if you can't be safe and honest here, where else can you be? And so on one hand, in the spiritual battle, this is to be the keep, the place where you come in and we put our backs against one another and we breathe easy for a moment before we go back out into battle. But on the other hand, we need to talk about what it means to be in, on the offensive, in the battle for the kingdom of God. I think it's really clear. Um, Jesus gives the, the marching orders to his disciples in Matthew, uh, Matthew 28. Uh, we quote these verses in almost every service. Because these are the marching orders from Jesus. Here's how he tells us to go out into battle. In verse 19, he says, go. Go into battle this way. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. What? I thought I was going to get to knock somebody out. No, no, no. You go out and you share my love with people in a way that it draws them to me. You go make disciples of the nations. All ethnicities is the literal translation of that word. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you in this battle. And here's what I'm asking you to do, church. Go out into the world and proclaim what is true. Be the light in the midst of darkness you go out to those people who are in bondage and in slavery and you tell them that I love them and I'm not embarrassed of their sin, that I've died on behalf of their sin. I love them so much. You go tell them what is true and that is the advancement of my kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. One final note here if you're taking notes with us this morning. The church is on an offensive mission, an offensive mission, not defensive, but offensive, to defeat the gates of hell and to set prisoners of sin and death free by proclaiming the gospel. Remember what it was that Jesus said he was going to build his church upon? The faith statement that I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what sets prisoners free. Now, let me read to you um, what our statement of faith says as a church. I hope now you understand more fully what the church is. Our statement of faith says this about the church. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The church is united into the body of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit and the church prevails in its mission to make disciples of the nations under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The universal church is manifested in local churches. We're, we're one of those local churches, but we're not the church. We're just part of it. Whose membership is composed only of those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Now, here's what I, where I want to go next. I want to I close out today by, by sharing my heart with you and, and praying for us as a church. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, um, a lot of this you've heard before, okay? I get that. But what my hope would be is that this morning, the word of God would stir in us and, and kindle within us a passion, a passion to be the church. Not just a passion to know what the church is, but a passion to be the church. 
Like this battle that's being described, it's being waged whether you engage in it or not. Parents, this battle is being waged against your children whether you choose to get involved or not. And so my hope is that God would kindle within us this passion to be the church, that we would become a people who long to be united together in community, the kind of community that causes us all to grow, the kind of community that's, that's okay with awkwardness and, and at times frustration, but we don't, we don't leave and turn our backs on one another. We press in. A prayer would be that God would kindle within you a passion to say, you know what, I want to be on this mission. I want to be involved in what God is doing here on earth as he builds his kingdom that might mean joining one of our projects we're doing. That might just mean, you know what? I need to go to my neighbor's house. I need to introduce myself. I noticed that the gentleman down the street doesn't look like he can mow his grass. I'm going to go down there and mow his grass and begin a conversation with him. That might mean I know this single mother at work. And you know what? I've never even asked her if, she, if she's okay and she needs any help. I'm just going to press in and maybe take her to lunch and, and see if she's okay, if there's anything I can do to help. It means that you'll be actively on the mission to take the love of Christ to a world that is shrouded in darkness to set prisoners free with the love of Christ. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, here's my second hope. I'm going to pray this for you, that today would be the day that you would place your life upon the altar of the truth that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. And he loves you so intensely and so proactively and so intentionally and so specifically that every sin in your life has already been nailed to the cross. Every sin in your life. There isn't a darkness, there isn't a dark corner in your life that he's embarrassed to walk into with you. There is no event from your history so big that would cause Jesus to discard you into the pile of rubble. He actually goes to that pile. That's where he, he is right now. And he's inviting you to place your life and your trust in him and him alone. And he's inviting you into this beautiful relationship into the kingdom of God. Not as, no longer as a sinner, but now as a saint. And I'm going to pray that if that's you today, you would take that step in faith. That's it. You come to Jesus like Peter did. You say, I believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and I'm going to build my life upon that. Let's go. And from that moment, he will begin to work in you, shaping you, sometimes uncomfortably and painfully at times, at other times, beautifully and in the midst of rest. But he will begin to work in you and on you. Let me pray for us now as our worship team comes back up. Um, Father, we are uh, we're so grateful this morning. We bow in, 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 with our hearts full of gratitude, especially those of us who know where we used to be before you picked us up out of the rubble. We have no room to boast, no room to brag, no room to say that we're here today because of our own efforts. Every one of us humbled at the cross, declaring it's the work that you've done and that you've done alone that saves us, that transforms us, that forgives us, God. May that be our song today. We are redeemed. And Father, I also pray for the person here who feels like a stranger who doesn't know the love of Christ that reaches into the depths of who we are and forgives us at the deepest level. I pray today that that person in their own words, in their own heart, would come to you this morning to bring to you the mess, to bring to you the heaviness and the shame, to bring to you their shackles, arms extended, that you would unlock those shackles this morning with your love. God, do a work that only you can do in us, we pray in Jesus' powerful name.